Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, April the 25th, 2023. It is currently 9.42 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And if you heard my last live broadcast, you know there's something wrong, right? I'm not supposed to be going live at 9.42 p.m. Central Time. I was scheduled to go live at around 8 p.m. Central Time. That's that's when I was supposed to go live, but obviously something happened, and you may want to know what happened. What happened was severe thunderstorms in the area. Certain uh, certain areas around here got tennis ball size hell and 60 to 70 mile per hour wind. It was it was looking bad. It was ugly. Um, most of the storms kind of slid past us. They've kind of moved away. They were kind of coming from different directions. It was kind of crazy just to watch them all form and watch the radar and going outside looking and the lightning got, got really bad. So I was afraid to go live at 8 p.m. and either have lose internet, lose power or not just that sitting here in the studio trying to broadcast when there's wind and thunder and lightning and hell and like that would have been just you know not a good broadcast so I delayed it until do you hear that sound listen listen carefully the sound of silence do you hear that the sound of silence. You may hear a little wind. You may hear a little wind. Some trees rustling in the background. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if you heard anything, but it, but that, but that is much more. Put it this way: it's quieter than it was at any other point in the evening, where it sounded like the end of the world. So now it is calm outside, but it's not really calm here inside the studio because we're in the middle of a little bit of controversy. Because I did a today's focus this morning that I really thought was, I mean, considering some of the other things we've talked about recently, I, I thought those would spark far more controversy, far more emails. But today sparked controversy because I did a today's focus about the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10, which reads, My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love my fair one, and come away. So I took that verse. I took the morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon from his devotional morning and evening, the entry for today, for this morning, and showed you how Charles Haddon Spurgeon took Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 10, and looked at it from a more allegorical, spiritual way, like like, uh, Spurgeon looked at it, my beloved is speaking, that's speaking of Christ, spake and said unto me, rise up my love, my love is us as a Christian or the church, my fair one and come away. And this is Jesus telling us to rise up and come away with him, to leave worldliness, to leave, you know, ungodliness, to leave all of your affections that you have for the things of this world and, and, and follow and go away with him. Uh, and it says, run away with Jesus, uh, elope to Jesus, however words you want to use, however poetic or, or romantic or however you want to, 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 to word it. And I just kind of raised the question, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that a correct handling of the text? 
Should we read the Song of Solomon as a spiritual allegorical book that describes the love of Jesus for the church or the love of Jesus for the individual believer or for the the love of the individual believer or the church for Jesus? Should we look at it that way or should we look at it as maybe it's just a book about the passionate love between a man and a woman? And if we did look at it that way, what what would what would be the bad or the good that comes from it? Basically, I wanted everyone to just to take the Song of Solomon today and read it, go verse by verse, and try to consider each verse and go, do I look at this in a more literal way between a man and a woman, or do I allegorize, spiritualize this, and how far can you take it before it starts getting really, 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 really weird? Like... That like I I think that was a reasonable question, right? I think it was a reasonable question. I offered some of my perspective and how to deal with Old Testament passages that we may think are a picture of Christ. Well, I gave a couple of principles. Number one, it is impossible and foolish to say every verse of the Old Testament is about Jesus. There is nothing to indicate that. The verse that people quote to try to indicate that, they are clearly not reading it correctly. Yes, there are things in the writings of Moses and in the prophets that are about Jesus, and Jesus expounded those things that are about him. He didn't go through every single verse of the Old Testament and say, this is about me, this is about me. That's just not, that's not correct. There are things in the Old Testament that are about Jesus. Now, the way we can be dogmatic, oh, that is about Jesus, is, number one, does the New Testament writers quote it? If they do, and if they apply it directly to Jesus, you can dogmatically assert that passage is about Jesus. It was a picture of Jesus. It pointed to Jesus. Because the New Testament writers, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declare it to be so. Then you can be dogmatic. You can assert it. You've got textual evidence that it is so. However, if a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament verse and doesn't apply it to Jesus, applies it to something else, well, then you may want to be very careful in saying that it's about Jesus, because now you have New Testament writers who are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not applying it to Jesus. And if you have no New Testament reference, no New Testament writer quotes it, reference it in any way, shape, or form, then you may want to be very careful before you come along and just assert, this is a picture about Jesus. Why? Because I say it's so. Because what hermeneutic are you using? You can't just go, that's a picture about Jesus because I say it's so. Like you would have to give a textual reasoning for saying it's a picture of Jesus. Now you could say this. There's some interesting things about this narrative, this historical narrative, this poetic section, whatever section, whatever literary genre you're reading, you know, apocalyptic uh, literature, you know, prophetic literature, uh, poetry, a historical narrative, whatever you are reading and say, if you look at the way this is structured and you look at how the words that are used, and then we compare them to certain things about Jesus— it is an interesting similarity. You, now that's, that's, that's perfectly okay to point out. You're, you're pointing out a clear observation that the New Testament and that passage in the Old Testament would prove. But you, it's far different to come and say, this was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be a picture of Jesus. You've got to have something that would clearly indicate that. But for some reason, 
That's controversial. For some reason, that created a storm. (laughs) And someone wrote me a long email. And part one that we did earlier this evening, we addressed all of that. I'm not going to read all of that. We're going to go down here in the email where after he kind of made uh, the, 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 the emailer, I, I, don't, I think it would be very fair to say, made, made some clear attacks, it's, it, I felt towards me, that I felt, felt was very uncalled for, because um, I, I think that it could have just had a more calmer, I, I think you could have just had a, mo- a much more calmer approach and just say, hey, because I even offered everyone, hey, Let me know what you see. Let me know what you think. They could have just said, hey, here's what I see in the Song of Solomon. Here's my textual reasons for interpreting it as a spiritual metaphor. And I would have been like, okay, that that's that's I would have looked at it. But so I'm just going to set aside all the things they said before. And uh, here's where it uh, the kind of the tone of the email I felt begin to change a little bit. All right. To a more positive tone. All right. Here we go. Are you ready? That was a how long? A nine-minute review. I apologize, but here we go. I'm trying to put every, get everyone on the same page. Here we go. In your own podcast, this is the emailer saying this about my podcast. In your own podcast, you start saying one of the signs, something might be a symbol, is if it's odd and stands out in some way. I have read through the Bible hundreds of times, and the song, and the song of Solomon, or they just say the song, is odd and stands out. Even if you want to take this naturalistic approach, and I will explain why I think that is very wrong, the timing and placement of this is just very odd. Eventually, everything about it is odd and stands out. Okay, that's all you have to do is just say, hey, here's my reasons. I I believe the Song of Solomon is a spiritual metaphor. It's to be interpreted allegorical. It's not to be interpreted as literal between a man and a woman. And here are the reasons. You said if something stands out as odd or weird about the text, and I believe it stands out and it's odd. And here are my reasons why. I would have been more than happy. And if you took these reasons that I'm assuming the emailer is about to give them, then just tell me where you got them, what book, where you got them, where you found them. Because then I can look up your source and what and try to figure out what hermeneutical method they're using, and we can try to uh, uh, arrive at some kind of conclusion. But let's see what the emailer does here. All right, here we go. Now God is not shy about sex, and that's not even the point here. But do we see God using this also? Uh, do uh, now God is not shy about sex. And that's not even the point here. But do we see God using this also as a metaphor for spiritual intimacy with him? You'd have to be blind not to see that. Now we're back to the attacks. Now we're back to the attacks. So I have to be blind. So once again, this is what it comes down to. If I don't agree with their hermeneutic, this is what basically I've been told if we go through all the attacks. Um, I'm basically blind. I am basically silly. I am basically disingenuous. I'm basically, I have uh, basically no faith. Basically, I'm lost. I mean, if I go through all of the attacks in the email, I'm blind. See, if I don't see their hermeneutic, I'm blind. Yet, Yet to establish, though, why their hermeneutic is right. So before we even get to why their hermeneutic is right, I'm already being told I'm blind if I don't agree with their hermeneutic. (laughs) 
I, I guess I, I can't wait to I, I'm, I'm hoping by the end of this email, I get a uh, an Amazon link to their book on hermeneutics, because clearly anyone who doesn't agree with their hermeneutic is blind. The prophets even used more explicit and direct euphemisms than song ever did to describe the people's spiritual idolatry. Now, listen, it is true. It is absolutely true that the prophets used explicit language to describe idolatry as whoredoms, as spiritual adultery. But the text clearly tells you it's using the language. (laughs) Right? It says you're going after idols you're, and it literally tells you what the issue is and what they're calling it. Like, like it's not some like weird, like, oh, I think, are they, are they trying to say that's, uh, that, that idolatry is spiritual adultery? Is, are they trying to say that idolatry is whoredom? Or, no, they explicitly tell you we're using this language to describe this. There is no hint There is no something, it's not mysterious. It is explicitly stated. So does the Song of Solomon explicitly state, hey, we're using this relationship to describe spiritual intimacy with God. Now, if you want to use the Old Testament prophets and the the language they used, you're right. They used euphemisms. They used explicit language. But they, it was, it's clearly, you clearly see it. It's not some like, wait a minute, we got to figure this out. It's right there in your face. All right, but okay, here. Um, It says, uh, the prophets used even more explicit and direct euphemisms than song ever did to describe the people's spiritual idolatry. Bridal and romance language are so common through the scripture that after a while, they fail to even stand out as remarkably different. Uh, And we culminate in Paul with the statement that marriage itself is just a reflection and picture of Christ and his bride. But again, Paul clearly tells you what he's doing. See, he keeps going to these other passages, but these other passages, passages explicitly tell you what they're doing. Hey, I'm not speaking of just a man and a woman. I'm speaking of Christ in the church. It tells you. It, 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 the text literally gives you the hermeneutical principle, how to interpret it. So I got no problem agreeing with you that there are passages that uses br- the bridal language, romantic language, language of spiritual, uh, of sexual immorality to describe everything from idolatry to relationship between Christ and the church. Eh, you're right. But those texts, see, this is what's, this is what you need to remember. Those texts tell you what they're doing. They tell you. So if the Bible can clearly explain to you when it's using that language what it's talking about, then why would the Song of Solomon not tell you? Unless you believe there are passages that explicitly tells us what it's doing. And why is the Song of Solomon considered by many to be an erotic poem? Oh, they're blind and they just don't know and they're fleshly and they're unbelievers and they're silly and they're disingenuous. Or maybe... There is some hermeneutical reasons why many go, uh, I don't see all of those 
those like in other parts of the Bible, it clearly seems to indicate this is what we are doing. It's like waving a flag. Hey, 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 right here, right here, right here. We're using the language of adultery to describe idolatry. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Here we're using a romantic, the, the union between a man and a woman to describe Christ and the church. Hey, 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 right here. Like in all of those cases, the text is explicit. So I'm with you. When the text explicitly tells you, using this to picture this, then we interpret the picture that the text is telling us it's picturing. (laughs) See, we're in complete agreement if we will just stop right there. All right. Okay, here we go. If we get people misusing or going overboard in some sense in bridal imagery, does this justify throwing out the baby with the bathwater? No, this would just tell us that they are overstepping the lines because they're going to text that does not say that's what they're doing and they infer that's what's happening. That's when you're, that's when you have to stop. Hey, just because this text does it doesn't mean that in every text that's what they're doing. Because the author of, of said book is, is, is isn't it being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit can inspire Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Isaiah when they're using that kind of language to tell you what they're doing, I'm assuming that Solomon could have been inspired to tell us what he's doing. If Paul could be inspired to tell us what he's doing, I'm assuming other writers could be, te- could, could be telling us what they're doing as well. So the, the issue is when the text doesn't say that it's what it's doing, can you come along and say, I know what you're doing. I didn't write the book, but I'm going to tell the author, hey, Solomon, this is what you were doing. As if you know more than Solomon, as if you know more than God. I got to have some some hints. I got to have some clues. Does a misuse and a counterfeit negate any genuine article? I never made that claim, never insinuated that claim. Uh, what I insinuated is that I am, all, and I even stated this in the podcast. What Sometimes what frustrates me is when I have to answer email and I have to answer an, a charge of something I never said. I said that I may be extra sensitive to this because of what I experienced as a student at the Family Radio School of the Bible when Harold Camping was in charge and he went from someone who was solid to predicting the world was going to end in 1994 and then predicting the end of the church age and I could go through all the crazy things that transpired. Yes, I may be a little sensitive to it. I acknowledged I may be sensitive to it. I never said because someone abuses something, throw it out. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm assuming the listener knows I hold to Reformed theology. Do you don't think there's ever been abuse of Calvinism? Wait, I hold to the eternal security of the believer. Wait, do you think there's never been an abuse of that? Wait, I believe in grace. There's people who've abused grace. We read about them in Jude, who turned grace into lasciviousness. I haven't thrown out the doctrines of grace. (laughs) So, So clearly, no, I don't believe that an abuse of something calls you to throw out the genuine article. 
But what you have done is you've gone to passages where the genuine article is clearly articulated. It is clearly explicitly stated what the author is doing. And you want to infer because it's done here and explained. I can go to a book where it's not explained, where it's not explicitly stated that is what is happening and just now force it into the text. That's not hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is you've got to give me a textual reason why. And all of those examples you've cited, I can give you textual examples of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel explaining exactly what the language means or Paul explicitly stating what the language means. Or Jesus using same kind of language of of marriage and marriage supper of the lamb and all of those things. It's explained. Now he goes, because there is tons of pornography out there, does that mean all sex is bad? Neither does spiritual pornography speak against actual spiritual intimacy. Okay. Next. Yet, there is nothing truly explicit in Song of Solomon, just about kissing or praising someone's looks. Thank God I've been free from pornographic things for quite some time. But let me tell you, anyone would laugh saying the song was explicit in that sense. So anyone would laugh if you say it's explicit. Anyone would laugh. Anyone. All right, let me get. Okay. I'm just, I'm just doing a search. Just doing a search here. The Song of Solomon. Warning. Explicit biblical material. <laughs> okay. Uh, 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 now. This is what they go on to say. Okay. Despite regularly attending church services and Sunday school three times a week for years, I can only remember Song of Solomon mentioned one time. This was when I was attending a Church of Christ Wednesday night service while working for Foster Home for Children, supported by the Churches of Christ. The Wednesday night services were entitled something like, Through the Bible in a Year. The preacher preacher said something like, The Song of Solomon is a unique book. You should read it at home. Perhaps it is evident that not all authors knew that they were writing books of the Bible, or knew they they were writing books of the Bible while they were writing. (laughs) Okay. Okay. and then they, they offer some other things here. Um, according to most scholars, Song of Solomon describes a love, a physical love between a bride and a bridegroom. Because of the erotic nature of the verses, Jewish and Christian scholars have often took an allegorical view of the book. Jews claim that the bride represents Israel and the bridegroom represents Yahweh. Christians such as, as different church fathers, Hippolytus, Origen, Jerome, claim the poem is about the love of Christ for the church. This is the problem with allegory. It can mean anything to anybody. 
Furthermore, the Bible does not tell you when verses are allegory and when they are literal. Who decides whether a verse are allegorical or literal? However, I have a problem with the allegorical approach. Does the following following phrase sound like the relationship between Christ and the church? Your stature is like that of the palm and your breast like cluster of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Yeah, that, that would be a hard to, to look at it to, that way. So it only took me one second to find an article. <laughs> In fact, the very first article that came up, the second article uh, from the Center for Theological Conversation, the sultry song of Solomon, okay? <laughs> um, the next, Finding Truth, Erotica and the Bible, the Song of Solomon Controversy. The Gospel Coalition, what's the difference between erotica and the Song of Solomon? Okay. The the next one, the Song of Songs, where the Bible is sexually explicit. Uh, The next one, Solomon's sex-filled song. Next, does Song of Solomon teach sexual immorality? Next, the sexiest chapter in the Bible. I mean, literally, there's plenty of people throughout church history who have come to a different conclusion than the person emailing. But the person emailing just says, all of these people are blind. All of these people are wrong. All of these people are silly, disingenuous, and basically are bearing bad fruit of unbelief. Or maybe, again, a different hermeneutic. So far, all you've expressed is other passages use the imagery of marriage, romance, and adultery to describe things like Christ and the church or to describe idolatry. And every one of those examples, the text tells us exactly what is going on. Okay. So he says, there's nothing truly explicit in songs just about kissing or praising someone's look. Well, I don't think everyone would agree with you there. But I guess, I mean, but I guess, you know, you, 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 you are probably the one who's right. Thank God I've been free from pornographic things for quite some time. But let me tell you, anyone would laugh saying the song was explicit in that sense. If you've read actual explicit material, many have written. I hope I don't need to go there and show you the difference. And I won't. won't. Well, I, look, I understand this. You may give me explicit material written in our time, but how explicit was it at the time it was written? See, you can't compare it to explicit material today. You would have to compare it to explicit material of the time of its original writing. Would it have been considered explicit then? So your argument so far is other passages which tell us what they do means the Song of Solomon could be doing the same thing even though it doesn't tell us what it's doing. And secondly, it's not that explicit. Okay, let's say it's not that explicit. That doesn't mean that doesn't prove that it to be viewed as a spiritual allegory. The early church wanted to view it as a spiritual allegory because they saw it as explicit. <laughs> Okay, but, but okay, but okay, but okay, but okay. All right, let's see where this goes. All right, let's see where this goes. You may take some of the metaphors and think they're describing sexual acts 
And that is possible. But it is both a matter of interpretation and the delicacy and tact in which the things are stated. This is not the raw and raunchy porn book of the Bible. Okay, well, when did I make that claim? When I never made any such claim. I said that, do we interpret this as an allegorical book or do we speak of this as the physical intimacy between a man and a woman? I didn't describe it as pornography. I didn't describe it. I may have said that it, it can get very explicit. Because many would say that it has. I'd have to go back and look at my exact words, but I don't think I went into some tirade about it being pornography or explicit. And I, I don't think I did any, I don't think I said anything like that. I think the most I said is when we tried to go through it verse by verse, we got to some verses where we're like, ooh, how do we make that a spiritual metaphor? That just got kind of weird. Like the verse quoted in that article. Climbing the tree and the, the, your breast are like, I mean, like that got, that gets some, that gets a little, oh, yee, okay. All right. Oh, wait. Okay. Everyone ignore what it seems to be saying. It's a spiritual metaphor. So am I climbing? Do, who has the breast? Does the church has the breast or does Jesus have the breast? Like, see, you have to start asking questions like that and it gets really weird. Whose breast? Who's climbing the tree to get the breast. Like it starts getting really weird. I I stated from the beginning, there are sections in the song of Solomon that seems to be like, oh, this could work. This could work as a spiritual metaphor. This could work as an allegory. It's quite beautiful. But almost in every case, if you keep reading and you, because once you establish that's the hermeneutic, you've got to follow that hermeneutic throughout the book. And my claim is you get so far and it starts getting, uh, it starts like, that's not, okay, guys, just stop. Let's just stop. That's just getting uncomfortable. That's all I'm claiming. And so all I wanted everyone to do is just go verse by verse through the book today and see if they found the same thing. That's all, that's all I wanted someone to do, which I've done it with my church. And everyone in my church was like, okay, that, no, that's not working. No, no, that just got weird. Almost everyone was like, okay, wait, 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 wait. And then we tried to read how people tried to turn it into a spiritual allegory and it became almost comical. It was almost a joke. And we're like, that's ridiculous. They're ignoring the actual words that are being used. All right. Uh, it says, this is not the raw and raunchy porn book of the Bible. And I'm not saying you said that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So, uh, so hopefully you won't knee jerk react instead. Listen to what I'm saying. Okay. Thank you for saying that. I did need knee jerk react because I was, I'm re I'm responding to it in real time. Thank you for saying that. But I want to make it clear to everyone else, not because again, this is not about that email or this is about the bigger subject. I am not saying any of those things about the book. I'm not saying any of these things. I'm just saying the book is either about the physical relations between a man and a woman, romantic, physical love, or it's an allegory. And I'm not here to get into how explicit it may be or not be. But I do know this, and this is not a knee-jerk reaction. I do know this. When you go through the book verse by verse, you're going to find yourself at times going, mm, yeah, no, I'm not so sure that works. And, but I want to make it very clear. I'm not also running around going, oh, let's do a 10 week series on 
sex in the Bible. Let's do a 10-week series on the erotica of the Old Testament, like to use something sensational to create a sermon series. I'm not down with that either. What I'm down with is figuring what the book is actually saying. But I'm obviously listening. So the, the, the emailer may think I just gave a knee-jerk reaction, and I apologize. I probably should have finished that sentence, but I wanted to make sure that it was clear that I was not saying any of those things, nor did I say any of those things. All right? But I am glad the person acknowledged I did not say those things, and I apologize if you feel that I gave a knee-jerk reaction. But I just want to make sure no one walks away with that interpretation. But I, but obviously I'm trying to listen to everything you're saying because I've already spent one hour working on this. This is hour number two, and I'm possibly going to go hour three or hour four to work through everything you are saying. So here we go. Many ancient rabbis and deeply devout and spiritual Christians have seen this as a spiritual metaphor. And are we to simply discount their testimony? For the more grounded and secular views that want to just naturalize everything. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That is a false dichotomy. First of all, those rabbis and those early Christians, many of them come from a, a school of hermeneutics known as spiritual allegory. There was an allegorical system of hermeneutics within Judaism, and there was an allegorical system of, inter of hermeneutics an allegorical system of hermeneutics, even in the early church, which borrowed from Jewish, the Jewish allegorical method. I can't, I've got a book probably behind my pulpit or maybe underneath my pulpit at church called uh, Protestant, Protestant hermeneutical systems. I, I would, ha I'll have to look for it and I will give you the name. I've, I've asked basically any person I've ever met to read the book and it literally out, uh, outlines all the different schools of hermeneutics throughout church history. Here's this school of hermeneutics. There's this school of hermeneutics. There was an entire stream of Jewish and early Christian hermeneutics, even Roman allegorical hermeneutics. There was all kinds of allegorical approaches to writing. So just because that didn't make them spiritual and make the people who reject the allegorical system secular, that's just, that's just a flat out lie. That's just not even remotely honest. There are those who interpreted the Bible allegorically. There are those who rejected the allegorical idea. That didn't make them less spiritual. Didn't make them secular. It made them approach the Bible in a more literal way than an allegorical way. Because if you start going down the allegorical path, well, maybe a virgin isn't actually a virgin. Maybe Jesus wasn't actually born of a virgin. Maybe Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead. It's just allegorical resurrection. Maybe Jesus really wasn't eternal God. Maybe that's just an allegory. Maybe the fall wasn't really a fall into sin. Maybe it was just an allegory. You say, well, that's going too far because you, you want to place rules on how far someone can go or not go. What are the rules that govern allegory? What are the rules that govern a spiritualizing of text hermeneutic? There's got to be rules. Who gets to determine where the rules are? You don't like my rules. So what are your rules? And where did you get your rules from? Is it your own system of hermeneutics that you just made up? Here we go. 
Many ancient rabbis and and deeply devout and spiritual Christians have seen this as a spiritual metaphor. And are we to simply discount their testimony for the more grounded and secular views that want to just naturalize everything? And again, what, what does it mean naturalize? It just means interpreting the text based off the language that is used. That doesn't mean naturalizing it. It means, does the language give me, does the language of the text lead me to metaphor or does it lead me to a poetic description of physical relationship. A book with extremely mystical and high poetry written by the man who, given completely over to carnal lust, wrote Ecclesiastes proclaiming the futility of life without God and Proverbs teaching us that wisdom is calling us away from the adulterous allurements to eat at her table. Instead, only natural adultery, right? And somehow it's bizarre and strange to think that maybe this highly metaphoric and unusual poem can be about something much more than natural life and human love. Well, I don't know. The man who wrote it had 700 concubines and 300 wives. (laughs) I think he would know a lot about physical intimacy. He may actually be the the greatest expert on physical intimacy to ever live with that many women. Do I just forget that? And you and see you. And once again, you say, and is it some and somehow is it bizarre and strange to think that maybe this high metaphoric and you're saying it's a metaphor. You're just all you're doing is inferring it's a metaphor. You've not proved anything. You're just inserting that that's your belief. Well, I can insert my belief. It's not. There you go. No, or, oh, wait, 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 wait for it. 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 Could it be that there is poetic metaphor in this text? But the poetic metaphor is not pointing to that which is spiritual. It's pointing to that which is physical and literal. (gasps) Whoa, could that be a possibility? That it's using poetic language to actually describe in a poetic, metaphorical way the relationship, the exploring of one another physically. Could it, could that be, uh, that's not possible? I mean, again, the person who wrote it, yeah, he wrote Proverbs, he wrote Ecclesiastes, and he also, oh, see, oh, ended his life as a spiritual idolater. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. A spiritual adulterer. Oh, and he was a physical adulterer. Oh, wait. And he was a polygamist. How many wives? How many concubines? Polygamy? Adultery? Idolatry. That's how Solomon ends his life. I don't know. I don't know how we can get away, get away from that. We have God calling people from Genesis to Revelation to an actual love relationship described as marrying God. But it's weird to have a stylized poem in the middle describing it. No, wait a minute. Yeah, there are texts that describe this marriage supper of the lamb. Right. Okay. It uses the actual language, a marriage supper of the lamb. It doesn't say the marriage supper of John and Becky 
Oh, wait, wait, wait. But we are to interpret that as a picture of Christ and the church. Whenever it's, whenever marriage is spoken of and it's a picture of Christ and the church, the author literally tells us. No one reads Revelation and go, I don't think that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think, oh no, it literally tells us what it is. You keep using passages that are explicitly clear and you want me to take that and enforce it into the Song of Solomon, which is not explicitly clear. What is explicitly clear is that it's using poetic language seemingly to describe a man and a woman. You're yet to take anything from the Song of Solomon and show me that. You try to say what? This man who wrote Ecclesiastes and Proverbs? I mean, why would he write a book about physical love? The same man who had 700 wives, 700 concubines and 300 wives or 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm, I'm, I'm reversing the numbers. You get the idea. Does anyone wonder what was beyond the veil anyway, or does God just not want us to care and put all our focus and desire only in the natural? Who said, I never said he would only want us to put our focus on the natural. I've not stated one thing that is being claimed here. I've not made these claims in any way, shape, or form. Here's, here's what I know. The scripture says, set your affection on things above. It's explicit. It tells me that. Do I want to know what's behind the veil? Are you telling me the Song of Solomon is to reveal to me what's behind the veil? According to whom? You? Not everyone even agrees with you. So for every commentator that you can find that agrees with you, I can find commentators that don't agree with you. Guess what we've still yet to establish? What hermeneutic are we to use to interpret the Song of Solomon? You want to use the allegorical? Go for it. Go verse by verse. And when you get in some really strange verses, let me know how you allegorically interpret them. And then tell me why I should follow your hermeneutical system. And then when do I stop the allegory? Do I start it in Ecclesiastes? Do I... Start it only in the Song of Solomon. Do I end it? Uh, do I end the hermeneutic, the, that interpretational method before I get to Isaiah? Or do I carry it into Isaiah? How about Proverbs? Okay, here we go. To make the song about natural love and to make the song of Solomon about natural love is destructive because it will create an unrealistic expectation and a distorted focus of marriage as if it is all some chick flick and romance novel and everything will just always feel erotic and tingly all the time. No, it would do that if we preach it that way. What we would have to question is, what is the Song of Solomon saying by the language that is being used? And what it would be doing if we take it as a more literal way, 
that it's describing the relationship between this man and this woman. And it's not necessary. It would be descriptive, not prescriptive. Who said I, where did I ever say it was prescribing anything? I would simply say it's describing something. Remember the difference between prescriptive and descriptive? Sometime a historical narrative is only describing something. It's not prescribing something. Now, if you want to get to what is the book prescribing versus what it's describing, that's a whole different hermeneutical question. And then we would have to get into it. We would have to go through and like, okay, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, uh, let him kiss me with a kiss of his mouth for thy love is better than wine. Okay. All right. Now, if we look at that from a literal way, okay. Who's, who is kissing whom? Who is this referring to? Once we start establishing the who, okay, the Solomon, we know Solomon is mentioned. He's mentioned right there. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. All right. So we know we have Solomon. Now, who's this woman? I think the, is the woman going to be described in the text? Right. So once we identify the woman, now we have the text itself identifying the man and identifying the woman. Then it would be describing the physical relation and the emotional relation. Clearly, it's Hebrew poetry. Clearly, I don't think there's anyone who disagrees it's not poetry. So it's describing something in a poetic way. Now, if it's describing something in a poetic way, anyone who knows anything about poetry would know that it's going to be using things that it's going to be much more exaggerated, much more metaphorical to describe this relationship. Could it lead someone to go, man, I wish I would have experienced that. It possibly could, but don't blame me for that. Blame God who inspired it. Now, remember you made an argument? Well, if someone abuses it, that doesn't mean we throw out the original. Well, just because someone may abuse the Song of Solomon doesn't mean we throw out the interpretation, right? That's the principle you established. People may have abused the Song of Solomon. Doesn't mean I throw it out. Doesn't mean I throw out an interpretation that people have misused to create the idea that life will always be, a, uh, as you put it, a chick flick and romance novel and that everything will always be erotic and tingly all the time. I, 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 okay. That would be someone possibly abusing the text. That doesn't change. That doesn't say, well, because someone could abuse this way, someone could abuse this interpretation, then someone should throw it out because I could turn around and someone could abuse the metaphorical approach. So I don't care if you use the more, you keep using the word naturalistic, the more literal approach versus the spiritual allegory approach, both can be abused. It is also destructive because the literal and it is the naturalist who want to shut everything down with the Song of Solomon is just sex. The literal morality of song is atrocious and it makes sense written by such an immoral person who glorified sex as God. You want people in your bedroom saying, we will rejoice and delight in you. You want to encourage people gazing on your wife like in 613. Do you often find yourself abandoned by your spouse and have to wake up in the middle of the night, but they've left you already? Is that the picture of a normal, healthy marriage? 
Apparently, the Bible endorses threesomes and more if you actually stay logically consistent and stick to your guns on the natural approach. Well, guess what? If I take the literal natural approach, Solomon, I mean, what are you going to say? Because there's some things in here that may be troubling. Oh boy, we've got to change our entire interpretation. Everything about Solomon's life is troubling. He had a thousand women. I mean, I don't understand I don't understand how, like, what? oh, so if we take it literal, it's going to lead to problems. Wait, wait a minute. I thought, I thought you said there was nothing in it but kissing and talking about the body now and, 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 and just, you know, praising good looks. Now you're telling me there's more in it than that. Now you're telling me if we take it literally, it's atrocious. And it makes sense written by such an immoral person who glorified sex as God. You want people in your bedroom saying we will rejoice and delight in you? You want to encourage people gazing on your wife like in 613? Do you often find yourself abandoned by your spouse and have to wake up in the middle of the night, but they left already? Is that the picture of a normal, healthy marriage? Apparently, the Bible endorses threesomes and more if you actually stay logically consistent and stick to your guns on the natural approach. I don't know why it would say it endorses it. It describes it. Abram took his slave and slept with her, meaning she probably had no ability to give consent. Some would even describe it as a rape. I'm not saying the Bible endorses it. It describes it. What David did, I'm not saying that endorses anything. It describes it. What they did to the woman in Judges, which is horrifying. I'm not saying it endorses it. It describes it. Something being described is not the same as endorsing. This is yet to prove anything about how he's yet that this person is yet to give me what hermeneutical system are you utilizing? You're just convinced that it's all an allegory and you're imposing that you're not proving it. You're just imposing it and your way of saying, well, it's difficult. So we've got to make it we got to make it metaphorical. We got to make it allegorical because it's difficult. Well, if we take that approach, I'm going to be taking the entire Bible. As when, when God tells them to go in and kill every man, woman, boy, girl, and child, I'm going straight metaphorical on that because that's horrible. That seems like genocide. Nope, not going to go with that. Not going to go with that. Nope, that's horrible. Not going to go with that. I mean, there's plenty of passages where I would be like, oh man, that, that, that is so troubling. That is so horrific. That is so horrible. Let, let, let's, let's just meta, let's make it a metaphor. You don't make it a metaphor because it's difficult or it's uncomfortable. The metaphor is not a way to get out of a, a uncomfortable situation. A metaphor is when the text seems to tell you, this is a metaphor. You've yet to give me anything in the text that says it's a metaphor. You've pointed to other texts where clearly they are identified as being a metaphor. <laughs> okay. And you've already said that there's really nothing explicit in it. Now you're saying there's all kinds of horrible things in it. So is, there, is it explicit or is it not explicit? Is it atrocious or is it not atrocious? Does it endorse threesomes and more? I mean, come on. If we just look at Solomon's life, what does it endorse? Polygamy, adultery. There's no way to get around it. 
The man was sleeping with women all over the place. Well, but that's just a metaphor. Oh, so now you want to cherry pick and choose and then act like your amalgamation of metaphor and naturalism is just the only default natural position. What? I don't understand why this person is speaking for me. Have you ever heard anything I've taught on the Song of Solomon? Where did I say, oh, wait, that's just a metaphor. When did, where did I say that? This person is like speaking for me. Do you have my secret recordings on the Song of Solomon? Do you have those secret recordings? Because the way I remember it going down was, all right, guys. I've got this book here. This is the way it went down in Victory Baptist Church in Ovalo, Texas. Hey, guys, I got this book here that says the Song of Solomon is a spiritual allegory that describes Christ's love for his church and the the love of the church for Christ. We are going to approach the book from that perspective, and we're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to see what happens. Sounds good to everyone? And we took that approach and then it began to literally unravel and fall apart. And everybody was like, that is weird. That's not going to work because the language is too explicit. There's just no way I can turn this into a metaphor without the metaphor becoming more creepy than the the actual language. That's how it went down. There wasn't any like, oh, wait, this is metaphor. This is literal. Nobody did that. I've never, I've, I have stated from the beginning, whatever hermeneutical approach you take at the beginning of the book, you have to follow all the way through. I don't know why you would make any assertion that I'm saying any of these things. Are you just using a hypothetical? Like, are you writing to me? Are you writing about other people? If you're writing about what other people do to the book, go contact them. I can't speak for them. So your exact words, well, but that's just a metaphor. Oh, so now you want to cherry pick and choose and then act like your amalgamation of metaphor and naturalism is just the only default position? Where, where did I do any of these things? To praise any human being to the point of perfection and glorification done here just seems unnatural and idolatrous. This is not to say admiring beauty is in any way wrong, but the poetry here reaches heights of praise that are wrong for a creature. Can many waters not quench human love? Is human love as jealous and unyielding as the grave? No, it, it's called poetry. See, see, there are hermeneutical rules for handling poetry. See, it can be poetic. It can be metaphorical and be describing something that's physical and real. Just because it's using allegorical, metaphorical language doesn't mean it necessarily is pointing to Christ and the church. It can be describing what is real, what is physically occurring between a man and a woman. I don't understand like, you know, that happens. Have you ever written a love poem to anybody? A romantic poem to anybody? Right? You use language, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, do I, ha- I, I, I is, is human love as jealous and unyielding as the grave? Or is it called a flame of Yahweh, I'm assuming of Yahweh, for a better and higher reason when the divorce rate among Christians is often higher than the world? Some flame of Yahweh, that is. 
like, I, what are you getting at? It's poetry. It's describing emotions of a historical moment. It's not saying all Christians are going to have this kind of love and therefore the divorce rate will be lower than the world. There is no claim in the Song of Solomon about anything like that. You're creating a straw man. Hey, this is what, if we, if we take it this way, this is how you have to interpret the book. You've yet to even establish what the hermeneutical rules are. You're creating a straw man, knocking it down and making you think, I guess you're convincing yourself that you're proving some point. You haven't proved one point. The only point you've proven is that other parts of the Bible that use said language tells us it's using it. You've tried to make some point. That because Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, he would never be a man to write about sex and physical love. I don't know. He's only a man who had a thousand women. So I'm assuming he would be very good at it. And then you act like that. I'm and then you said that there's nothing really explicit in it. But then you act like that. It's just atrocious. If we take it literal, it's just horrible. Now you're saying it describes this love in such an exaggerated way that there's no way it could be real. That's called poetry. (laughs) That's how poetry works. Poetry doesn't describe something like poetry doesn't say. There's a lamp next to me. That lamp is just a lamp. No, it's going to describe it like this, this lamp next to me. It's tall and magnificent. It's royal and it's beaming bright. It's going to describe it in an over the top way. I mean, that's how poetry, go get any poetry book. It's going to magnify the emotion. It's not going to be like, well, I was a little melancholy. It's going to be like, I slipped into the pit of despair and felt like my life hung over the abyss. It's going to describe it in the most exaggerated way. It's poetry. I, I don't like this is so weird. Like in, in, in any hermeneutics class, you have to learn the literary genre and then you have to determine what are the rules of interpreting that literary genre. They all provide different challenges. Historical narrative is going to be very different than poetry. Ap- apocalyptic language is going to be very different than Hebrew poetry or whatever. If it's wisdom literature, oh, we can go on and on and on and on. You have to identify the genre. Once you identify the genre, then you're like, okay, all right, how do we approach this? Now, there may be disagreement in how to approach it, but once we have to identify the, the, the genre, and then we have to say, okay, Let's, let's try. So this is the way I would approach it. Okay. Song of Solomon is poetry. We know what to expect, right? It's going to use exaggerated language, poetic language, metaphor, allegory. But what is it pointing to? All right. Well, does the text seem to point me towards a relationship between God and man? Or is it seeming to be described a relationship between a man and a woman? Okay, well, it seems to be between a man and a woman. All right, so let's run it that way. Let's treat it as Hebrew poetry that describes the love or and relationship and physical intimacy between a man and a woman. Does that work? Now, now, okay, now let's go through it and say, nope, it's Hebrew poetry, but it's all spiritual allegory describing Christ in the church. Let's run through that. Well, okay, does that work? That just got weird because now I got to really push those metaphors, right? So wait, whose breast is he describing? 
Like, what do I do with that? Wait, who, who's, which tree, like what's happening here? What is that describing? Okay, so then we look at it and like, well, a lot of scholars believe it's describing this act. Well, how do I turn that into a spiritual metaphor? That's all I'm saying. That That's the correct way to work through it. You're just trying to argue it. I, what I told everyone to do today was to go through the book and try it yourself. But hey, I did my homework and and the song is not explicitly quoted in the New Testament saying, hey guys, this is about Christ. So I guess your position wins and mine loses, man. I bet you there's no sarcasm in that. All I was saying is, look in the New Testament and is the Song of Solomon quoted? And if it's quoted, does it point to Christ? If it doesn't, that should, all I'm saying is, that should make me stop and go, wait a minute. Let me now go, look, what hermeneutical system am I going to bring to the book? Now, what do I, what can I learn about the book? Well, I know it's poetry. All right. So I go into it utilizing a hermeneutic that, uh, that accounts for Hebrew poetry. Okay. Check. Okay. Now, the most logical thing to do would be to go through it, taking it literal, right? Okay. Well, literal is not going to work perfectly because it's Hebrew poetry. So I have to say, what is the Hebrew poetry pointing to? What's it describing? Okay. Well, it appears to be describing the relationship between a man and a woman. All right. Does that work? If it doesn't work, is there anything in the text that goes, wait a minute. That, now you pointed out some things that may say, well, I don't know if you can describe a woman that way because it may reach the point of idolatry. Well, does it? Is, is it seem like he, that she's, he's describing her or she's describing him in terms of deity or attributes of God, like omnipresence, uh, omnipotence, holy, like, it, 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 is it, is it, it, and if that occurs, then that would be like, ooh, that that would be taking that that language a little far. Okay, does that happen? Does that happen? Right? That so uh, you no know, reason to get sarcastic. No way could this possibly be speaking of spiritual love and the difficulties of seeking God in prayer when He seems to have left us. So. This is a book. So according to this person, the Song of Solomon is a book about spiritual love, the difficulties of seeking God in prayer when he seems to have left us and falling spiritually asleep. That metaphor is never used for sure. Yeah, no, it's typically used and it's told. It's to, we know how it's being used because the text tells us. Or being, uh, uh, being among the clefts of the rock when my beloved wants to hear my voice. I'm sure your spouse puts you in the cleft of the rocks all the time. So it, that just seems like a normal marriage thing. I, I, you look, you can be as sarcastic as you want. You've attacked. You've been sarcastic. If that's the way you want to approach it, you can. You can, you can be that way. I don't know why my Today's focus would lead someone being sarcastic like that to me, attacking me, calling me silly, silly, disingenuous, and basically that I'm lost. I like, there is no reason for those kinds of attacks. I did nothing at all to deserve that. All I did was try to say, hey guys, today's focus. Hey, listen to Charles Haddon Spurgeon's devotional. 
Hey guys, go through the Song of Solomon. Hey guys, check the New Testament and see if it's quoted from. Hey guys, l- look and see how well the, me- the allegorical approach works. That's all I did. And then I get an email where I'm being attacked and I'm be- sarcasm, mocking. Total disrespect. Hey, but as long as we interpret the Song of Solomon right, we don't need to show respect or, or, or anything like that, do we? We can just accuse and mock and, yeah, okay. I mean, that's the way you want to work. Maybe we should just set aside the Song of Solomon and go look up maybe love, joy, peace, love your enemy and turn the other cheek. Because the way I'm feeling right now is I don't care about the Song of Solomon. I just don't feel like I deserve to be attacked. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other. And an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. So, C.S. Lewis, you're getting your hermeneutic from C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. That, that's your hermeneutic textbook when it's not a hermeneutic textbook? But, okay. Now, I, I'm at an hour I'm at 64 minutes. I'm just going to finish this because now I'm starting just to get really frustrated. The truth is I'm a little puzzled as to even why I'm writing this. Perhaps I'm hoping there is something here God wishes to communicate. God, okay. And because of our peculiar interactions, perhaps it seems awkward to directly dialogue and I'm okay with that. And truth, although I often in the soul wish God's people would be more friendly and caring. Have you been friendly and caring? What I, uh, what I really and truly care about is just if the spirit might use something for his purpose. Maybe I'm just self-destructive and maybe I feel strongly about a true and passionate vision of our relationship with God. We all have to make that choice whether we want to put the time and effort into and uh, to God's passion and whether we really desire to know God like that or just be happy with God's stuff instead. Okay, I, just because I want to take a text literal because I believe the text demands it doesn't mean I'm not passionate about God or want to care about God's love. Like that's just not fair that I'm just happy with God's stuff. How, how you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. I don't think we've ever even spoke on the phone. So how, how can you say that? Hey, like even imply that I just am happy with God's stuff. Look, I don't know who your issue is with. I don't know who you're upset with, but it's not me. I didn't do anything wrong. I did a today's focus which is literally designed to go, hey guys, here's what I would like you to focus on today. Let's consider this. Here's some things to think about. That's it. And then all you could have do is come back and said, hey, 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 hey. Heard your today's focus. Interesting topic to focus on for the day. Here's some thoughts. 
I believe that the Song of Solomon is a spiritual allegory. Here are my five reasons why I believe it's a spiritual allegory. Love to get your thoughts on it. And I would look at your five reasons and you're going to tell me where your five reasons come from. Like, did you get them from another book, from a sermon? Where What influenced you to think of the book that way? Now, you may claim it's nothing. You just read it. Well, then great. Then you just read it and you came up with it. Now, could you please identify which hermeneutical system you're utilizing to interpret it that way? Are you using an allegorical hermeneutic? And do you only use it for the Song of Solomon or do you use it for other books? And are you using an allegorical approach because you're recognizing it's Hebrew poetry? But then are you taking the Hebrew poetry where it could be using metaphorical poetic language to describe the union between a man and a woman? And you're saying, no, 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 no. It's metaphor, but it's pointing to Christ and the church. What give, what makes you think that? What, what are you, how are you coming to that conclusion? So far, you've not given me anything, but a lot of sarcasm, a lot of ta- attacks and, and being very derogatory towards me. And I haven't done anything to you. Well, I love that you listen to my podcast. I'm very grateful. I'm very appreciative of it. But I, I, I haven't done anything to you. I wasn't trying to hurt anyone today. I wasn't trying to anger anyone today. And if you want Christians to be nice and kind, you could start by trying to be nice and kind because I didn't do anything to you in any way, shape, or form. I've now spent well over two hours of my time trying to address your concerns. I've tried to do so and I've tried to do it in, in a godly way. And I apologize if I used any sarcasm. It says, you're welcome to cover this on a podcast if you're feeling particularly courageous. I'd rather, I'd rather though you just hear, I would rather though you just hear what God might be particularly saying to you. Well, I don't know what you mean by hearing what God says to me, because God speaks to me right here in Scripture alone. And the way I interpret what God says is by using hermeneutical principles that keep me from interpreting it in an incorrect way. So, we can't even hear what God is saying to one another because we don't agree, obviously, on the hermeneutic that is to be utilized and how God is speaking in the Song of Solomon. And if you're passionate about it being a metaphor, showing you your love relationship, your union with God, well, then go for it. I disagree. I'm not shocked by the fact that there would be disagreement in Christianity. We don't agree on anything. Christians don't agree on the word repentance. We don't agree on the word baptism. We don't agree on the Lord's Supper. We don't agree on the structure of the church. We don't agree on basically anything. We don't agree on salvation. We don't agree on the depravity of man. You've got everything from Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, Calvinism. You've got everything. Nobody agrees on anything. So I'm not shocked. I'm not coming to your house, forcing you to believe something. You're not going to be excommunicated for not believing what I I believe. I I, I haven't made, I I haven't done anything. I did a Today's Focus, which is literally a podcast designed to say, hey guys, here's something for you to focus on today. Go work on it. Have fun. And now I've spent two hours trying to address your concerns because I'm trying to show you respect. I'm trying to demonstrate that, hey, I take what you say seriously. And to demonstrate 
that I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to be doing a couple of things. One, I'm going to probably choose maybe two sermons. We may choose three sermons, random sermons, as random as we can be from Sermons 2.0. And we may do a review, meaning I don't, and I'm not going to listen to them first. So we may get a metaphorical approach. We may get a physical approach. We'll see. And we'll, we'll, we'll review just the introduction sermons from, from them because I'm assuming they'll establish their hermeneutical approach and why they're taking that hermeneutical approach. And then uh, maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll look at some other articles. Maybe we'll look at some commentaries. Maybe we'll turn this into, I don't know, I'll turn this into multiple series. And the only reason I'm going to do this is to just try to show respect to the subject. I'm more than willing to acknowledge I could be wrong about the Song of Solomon. I'm more than willing to acknowledge. Now, some of the wording in this email has kind of made me a little mad, a little little bothered, but I'm not going to try to allow my flesh to be rebellious and just say, you're wrong. What I'm going to say is you didn't prove anything in any way, shape, or form, not even close. So what I'm going to do is seek out other books and other approaches that may prove your point better than you articulated, and I will consider it because you know what? It's of no big deal if I interpret, decide to interpret the Song of Solomon allegorically versus more of a historical, grammatical, literal approach because it's not going to change one doctrine in any way, shape, or form. It's not going to change anything. Christ, I'm still going to believe in the deity of Christ, that he's the eternal son of God, second person of the Trinity, one God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal. I'm going to believe in the Trinity. I'm going to believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That's not going to impact any major doctrine in any way, shape, or form. And I can still find other passages that speak of a, a love between Christ and his church that explicitly states that's what it's describing. Now, maybe you didn't mean some of that the way it came across, and I will take that into consideration. Reading it, it came across like you you clearly got sarcastic, and you clearly attacked. And that's okay. If, if this is the doctrine that you're like, I guess this is like a serious doctrine for you. But I would say that when dealing with people, if you're so passionate about a loving relationship between Christ and his church, we are all called, we will never do this correctly, to love others, to love even our enemies, and maybe show a little bit of respect for someone whom you do not know and who has been trying to figure out the text for most of my adult life. Imperfectly. But I, anyone who knows me know I'm willing to change my doctrinal position Just like that. Just like that, I will change my doctrinal position. Just like that. The way to approach me is respectful and say, hey, here are my five reasons for claiming the Song of Solomon should be interpreted as a spiritual metaphor that describes the relationship between Christ and his church or Christ and an individual believer. And here... And then give me examples of how you interpret that 
those passages that seem to be the most explicit describing something physical, how you turn it into something spiritual, and then you can show me how it makes perfect sense to do so. And then I could just, I, that's all you had to do. There didn't need to be any sarcasm, didn't have to attack in anything, in any way, shape, or form. All right. We will work on this more. Sorry we went 75 minutes, but I had to finish this out. It looks like I possibly may have storms coming back into the area, but it's almost uh, 11 o'clock central time here in West Texas. I just heard some thunder. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to stop there. And I'm checking my email. Who knows how many emails I got? Um, nobody has said anything in chat, so... Maybe I'll, maybe everyone disagrees with my approach. And I look, I, I, I look for everyone who believes it's a spiritual metaphor. That's, that's okay. You don't have to attack me. I, I, I just, I don't understand why this, like, this is the, the battleground now. I, I, of all the things I talk about, it's just, this is just bizarre that this would be a battle. Like, why would someone get so upset over this? Our different approach to the Song of Solomon literally impacts no serious major doctrine. It's just a debate over the hermeneutical approach we take to the text. It doesn't mean someone is lost, dead, bad fruit, silly, disingenuous, and I can't remember all the other blind or all the other attacks that were leveled at in the email. It just makes no sense to me. <sighs> the end. Now, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I have to take a deep breath. That was, wow, that was, that was, that was too much. I just feel like that was too much. I was just like, wow. Probably could have broken that down into a third part, but I didn't, I, I didn't want to go and I didn't want to have to do a no whole nother part. I hope you understand. I wanted to be done with that email once and for all tonight. And then we can do our own work on the Song of Solomon. Now, if you have a different opinion, can you just please email me like in a reasonable, rational way and just articulate clearly what point you want to make, right? Hey, here are my five reasons for interpreting this way. Here's how I interpret some of those passages that maybe may seem a little odd. Thank you. And then I will be like, okay, good. Now, if you, if you take your points from another book on how to interpret the Song of Solomon, just give me the book and the page number and I'll go buy the book. And we'll go, here's a book on how to interpret the Song of Solomon. This book claims we should interpret it this way. And I got no problem. I got no problem doing that. Maybe we'll do a, um, do we do a book background study method? What method should we use? Book background method? Book survey method? There's lots of different Bible study methods we could use to really dig into it. We'll, we'll do some work. We'll do some work. Maybe, maybe Sunday night at Victory Baptist Church. Maybe Sunday night. We'll do so. Maybe Sunday night. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe Wednesday. We'll see. All right. Well, maybe we'll start reviewing sermons soon. I got to finish another sermon review on Deuteronomy 8. Remember, we stopped that sermon review. But I stopped all of that to take care of this today. So I hope I know the person who hears this 
is not going to be happy, but I hope you know I put forth a lot of work and effort. Try my best to work through all of your positions and arguments. And I, I am glad, and I will say this, I am glad that you're passionate about us having a passionate love with Christ. That's good. That's a good thing. Don't want to in any way throw water on that fire or that passion or that zeal. Don't, I don't want to do anything. I was young. I don't know how old or young this person is. I was young and I had passion and zeal. And a lot of times somebody would throw water on it. And I always resent the fact that they did that to me. So I, I want you to stay passionate, stay fire on fire for God. But just remember your fire for God shouldn't burn others. Thanks for listening. God bless.